Turn your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> and uh, we're delighted to see the Wimberley family here this morning. And uh, we've known them for a number of years. They are actually part of our church in Ohio for, uh, for a while before I left them and uh, went to be a missionary. And uh, they still hold bitterness in their hearts about that. <clears throat> you, you can see that bitterness come out when Brother Wimberley preaches, can't you? You just... It's just eating them up. <laughs> of course, I'm joking. But uh, we thank the Lord for them and their friendship, and I uh, love them dearly. Thank you for taking on the Pamiri Project. What a blessing that will be uh, as we strive toward getting those people the Word of God. There are actually 10 languages in that group, and uh, we're targeting the Waki language is the first one we're targeting. But uh, we believe that uh, there's a young man who just spent three weeks over there with us and with the Cleghorn family. And we believe God is directing this young man to join the team, and his uh, role would be to tackle another one of those 10 languages and work in collaboration with Brother Cleghorn, but simultaneously translate the New Testament into two different languages. And we're excited about that. We want to do all 10 of those languages. Um, and as God provides laborers for that, we'll move forward with it. I told the Lord when we started Worldview Ministries that I'll, I'll walk through every door you open if you provide the people and the funds. And he has proven himself to provide those things over and over and over. There, there are now 42 people serving with our ministry, either full or part-time. And uh, we have 10, uh, in the next couple of months, we will add our 10th project. We're translating the Word of God around the world in seven different countries. And uh, we're just amazed at what the Lord is doing. And thank you for taking part in that and helping us accomplish that for the glory of God. Let's pray. And I want to introduce the message to you this morning and get right into it. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the power of your word as we're going to look at here in just a moment. Thank you for the impact it's had on our hearts. And we thank you in advance for the impact your word will have on our hearts today. Lord, would you please speak to us directly? We didn't come here just to enjoy singing and hear a sermon and walk away and go back to our normal way of thinking we came here to be impacted by your word. Uh, we, we, our hearts are stirred to worship you through the music. May our hearts be stirred to honor you with our lives through the truth we will learn today. I plead for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Faith that amazes Jesus. By way of introduction, I want to give you two thoughts about faith, and I could preach the whole sermon just on the subject of faith and what it is. But I wanted you to know that a lost, faith is so vital that a lost man can't be saved without it. Isn't that true? There is no salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is also so vital that a saved man can't live for Jesus without it. Romans 1.17 says the just shall live by faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.6 says without faith it is impossible to please him. Uh, a verse I struggle with once in a while, uh, or used to struggle with, is Romans 14.23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What does that mean? Well, I think it means whatever there is in your life that is not part of your faith walk with God, perhaps that shouldn't be part of your life. If it's not of your faith, a product of your faith, an outgrowth of your faith, an integral part of your relationship with God, maybe we shouldn't be walking in that direction. Uh, because everything we have with God is by faith. We can't see Him, we can't touch Him, we can't feel Him with our hands, but we know He's there by faith, and we walk with Him by faith, and we're encouraged 
all over the Word of God to grow in faith. We're encouraged to give diligence and add to our faith. So God expects us to increase in faith. He expects us to be strong in faith. Where are our examples for that? Where are the good examples we find, not just the world around us and the believers around us, but in the Word of God, where do we go to get good examples for, of, of faith? Now, if I ask you that question before I told you to turn to Luke chapter 7, no doubt someone would answer with Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, the, the Heroes Hall of Faith, or whatever you want to call it. But I think we're going to look, we are going to look at an example this morning of a, of a person that you wouldn't normally turn to to learn about faith. He is a Gentile. He is a Roman centurion. And we find the story in Luke chapter 7. And if you'll follow with me, please, we'll, we'll, please we'll read verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one, go, and he goeth, and, I, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. Here's my text. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. Jesus said of this centurion, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Something about this man's faith caused Jesus to marvel. It amazed Jesus. I want to submit to you this morning that it would have to be more than just the average faith of the average individual coming to Jesus. Because Jesus is thronged by multitudes of people as we go through the Gospels. And in verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When he had ended his sayings in the audience of the people. He just left a crowd of people. Why was this crowd of people gathered around him? They were gathered around him to hear the words that he spoke and to bring people to him for healing. Would you heal my son? Would you help my demon-possessed boy? Would you uh, heal my daughter? People are coming to Jesus for healing, believing that he can do miracles. Why would they bring their infirmed and their sick if they didn't have some kind of faith in who the Lord was and what he could accomplish? But this man's faith stood above everyone's because Jesus said of him, I've never seen it like this. This is amazing faith. So what is it that stands out about this man's faith? I'd like to give you five quick thoughts, five elements of this man's faith that amazed the Savior. Look with me, please, at verse 5, the first part of the verse. It says, for he loveth our nation. This centurion found his Jewish friends, and he sent them to Jesus to beseech the Lord that he would come and heal his servant. All of these, all of these parts of the story are important, and we're going to get to them. 
But he sent these Jewish friends to Jesus to say, would you please come and heal, heal this man's servant? And here's what they said about him in the first part of verse 5. He loveth our nation. I want to submit to you, number one, that faith that amazes Jesus is faith that loves across barriers. Faith that loves across barriers. Luke calls this man a certain centurion. And from that, we know two things. We know, number one, he was a Gentile. We know, number two, he was an officer in the Roman army. And would you think about that for a minute? Neither one of those two things would endear him to the Jewish people. You've heard this talked about before, and I won't belabor the point, but Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other. The Jews considered the Gentiles dogs. They wouldn't mix with them, and they avoided each other's company. By the way, the hatred went both ways. Uh, the Jews detested the Gentiles and resented, uh, resented them, and the Gentiles were anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitism is not dead. Would you agree with that? Still very much alive and well in, in America and around the world. But the Jews also resented the fact that this Gentile, this Roman man, is an officer of an occupying power in our nation. Nobody represented, think about it, nobody represented the power and domination of the Roman army more than a centurion. He was like a local police chief. He had at least 100 soldiers under his command, and they were charged with keeping the order in their given district. If, any, if anybody thought about an uprising or, or a, a resistance against the Roman occupation, this centurion would be the first on the scene to quell that uprising. Uh, any Jewish zealot would have been happy to knife him in the back in a dark alley some night. And the kind of, the kind of uh, feelings between Jews and Gentiles, I have a word for it. <clears throat> it's called prejudice. Because the root of it is, you're a Jew and I'm a Gentile, that's why we don't like each other. The centurion enlisted the willing help of these Jewish elders to approach Jesus, and I want you to think about what had happened here. They came to Jesus and argued in defense of a Gentile. They argued in defense of a Roman officer. What was it that caused that to happen? They said to Jesus, he loveth our nation. If you go back with me, please, to verse, uh, verse uh, 3. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, look at the next phrase, that he was worthy. You know what they said to the Lord? They said, here's a good man. Would you please help him? He loves our nation. He's been good to us. Somehow this Gentile Roman officer had loved his way through all of the enmity of their prejudice, and he had endeared himself to these Jews. He must have had some kind of faith to overcome all of that. He must have had some kind of faith to break through all of that. He, I believe he must have come to faith in the God of heaven. I can't prove that from the scripture, but whatever he, whatever he got caused him to love his way through those social and cultural barriers. And may I suggest to you that when that happens, people from both sides will resent you. Can you imagine his fellow officers telling, uh, looking at him and his relationship with these Jewish friends and berating him for reaching out to those people? How can you be friends with them? They're our enemies. Can you imagine the Jewish friends of those who argued in defense of the Roman. How can you help that officer? You know he's here as an enemy in our nation. You know he's a Gentile. 
How can you help that officer? So these two, both the Gentile in this story and the Jews in this story, would have risked the enmity of their own people to reach across these barriers. Can I tell you, it takes great faith to love beyond the barriers of our society. It takes special effort to understand and love people who are different from you. And may I also say that most of us never succeed in doing it because it's too far outside our comfort zone. It's too uncomfortable for us. Some who are otherwise mature Christians refuse to get involved with people they perceive to be spiritually or socially or racially or culturally inferior to themselves. You look at somebody who carries a Bible and goes to church every Sunday and sings the songs that we sang just a few moments ago and asking them to do certain things for certain people in certain locations and in certain social settings. Ah, no, 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 I can't do that. Are we willing to love others? Can I give you some examples? Are we willing to love others beyond racial differences? Across racial barriers. You see it on the screen. C.T. Studd announced his desire to go to the foreign field to reach the people of India and later then to the people, of, I'm sorry, China and then to India. When he told his family where he was going, and there's a big story behind all that, but when he told his family where he was going, they berated him because he was going to go reach those heathen, those heathen idolatrous people. When William Carey told the church that he wanted to go to India as a missionary, they, he was rebuked by one particular man who said, if God wants to save those heathen, he can do it without your help or mine. And you can hear, rooted in those kinds of responses, you can hear prejudice, can't you? Most of us would say that we are not prejudiced. I guarantee you, if I ask 100 people in this room, 99 of them would say, I'm not prejudiced. But may I tell you that we all grow up with prejudices. It's a part of who we are as we are raised whatever part of the country we were raised in and whatever people we were raised around, there are other people outside where we are from that we just grew up not liking. And it takes a, it takes a, a serious Christian to evaluate his own heart to say, not, I'm not prejudiced, but to say, Lord, am I prejudiced? I want to get transparent here and I'm going to confess a couple things. I was born and raised in Alabama. Put your hand over your heart when I say that word. <laughs> in Alabama, I was raised around hillbillies. Okay, as I was growing up, later we moved to Florida. <clears throat> My dad was a pastor, so he took a church in South Florida. And down there, everybody had a pickup truck with a gun rack in the window and cowboy boots. So I was born, listen carefully now, I was born a hillbilly, but I grew into being a redneck. <laughs> You're not born a redneck, you have to learn redneck, but you can be born a hillbilly, right? I grew up not liking certain people groups. I don't want to get specific about those groups because that's not my purpose this morning, but, but I grew up with those prejudices and I remember, I remember the day when as a pastor in Ohio, God began to expose the prejudices of my heart. If you had asked me, are you, are you prejudiced? Of course not. But I remember when God began to show me how much I was. A pastor in Tennessee one time told me this. He said, I grew up in the home 
of a World War II veteran, and he hated the Germans. Everything, every, every week of our lives, we heard the Germans this and the Germans that and the Germans this. He hated them as long as he lived. And he said, I got infected with that. And he said, it wasn't until I was a pastor that God showed me I hated German people for, for whatever reason. I don't know why I hate them, but I didn't like them. I remember standing in line at Walmart one day in my town of Mansfield, Ohio, and somebody behind me in line was speaking a different language. <clears throat> and the first thing that came to my mind was, this is America, why don't they speak English? Now, I, I, I like English, that's my language. But you know what God said to me through that? What's wrong with their language? That's the language they grew up with. I was getting, I was getting off of the plane in India, and I think Brother Wimberley was on the same trip with us. It's, it's the first time I went to India. We were standing in the plane still, waiting for the door to open so we could exit. And the people in front of me were speaking in Hindi because they were Indian. And the first thing that came to my mind, this is America, why don't they speak English? <laughs> but I wasn't in America anymore, I was in India. And God began to use those things to show me, uh, you have some prejudices and you need to deal with them honestly. My family in North Alabama I will use a specific example here, but my family in North Alabama, a lot of Hispanic migrant workers have come to that area uh, for jobs. And the town, that I, the town that I lived in when I was first, when I was born, was Albertville, Alabama, unless you're from there, and then it's Albertville, Alabama. But that town pretty much is probably 80% Hispanic now. And my family lived in the next town, which is just connected, it's three miles down the road, they despise the Hispanic people. And if you even bring up the word Mexico or Mexican restaurant or Hispanic, you're going to get some vitriol coming out of their mouth. And may I just move on to say that few things should shame us in the church more than prejudice. I was preaching in Toledo, Ohio, and I was talking about reaching Muslims. And I challenged people to in Toledo, Ohio, there's a, huge, there's a huge mosque right on I-75 coming up into the south side of Toledo, Ohio. There's a lot of Muslims in that area. <clears throat> and I was challenging the people to reach out to a Muslim. You can identify them by the way they're dressed in this area. There's such a large group here. 250,000 Muslims in Detroit, Michigan, just an hour north of Toledo. I said, why don't you reach out and befriend a Muslim and invite them to your home for a meal? Why don't you invite them to come to church with you? You'd be surprised. They may come to church with you even though they're, they know they're not Christian and they don't want anything to do with your God. They don't even believe in your God. They don't believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, and they think he was a good prophet, but they don't believe he's the son of God. But what if you just befriended someone and over a period of time you built a, a friendship and you invited them to church? I was giving that challenge. A man walked up to me after church and he said, we don't want to do that here in our church. So I talked to him for a few minutes, and finally, at the end of our conversation, I was kind to him, but at the end of our conversation, he said, I know you're right, but I just can't do that. That ought to shame us. Do you know what, do you know what I heard one time? As long as you have an enemy image of any people, you will not reach out to them with the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. As long as you see people as the enemy, how about this? You think God could call you to reach a people group on the other side of the world if you can't stand them? 
God can put in you a heart of compassion for them if you will let him. And if you're willing to see all men through the eyes of Jesus and love through those ethnic barriers, God can do a work in your heart. The Bible says when he saw the multitude, Jesus, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion. It's because he didn't see them as one ethnic group pitting against another. He saw them as souls. He saw them as people for whom he died. And may I say that as long as somebody's living and breathing, God loves them. How about this? Are we willing to love beyond social differences? I, don't, I won't spend as much time here perhaps, but James talks about loving across these social barriers, uh, treating the rich one way and giving them a preferred seat when they come into the congregation and telling this man to sit in the back because of the way he looks or he's dressed. But you know this is true. Riches don't make a man worth more to God. And poverty doesn't make a man worth less to God. <clears throat> I've seen the poverty of third world countries and it's heartbreaking but God is no respecter of persons and the amount of money in your wallet does not affect the value you have before God. Can I give you one more? How about the sin barrier? You ever look at certain individuals, the way they are dressed, maybe somebody who's all tatted up and got funny looking different colored hair and, and full of, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to talk to them. Can I remind you of something? You were the enemy of God too. And he came a long way to get you. And how can we say to God, thank you for your mercy, and thank you for your grace? That doesn't even go together, does it? There is no gratitude for grace if there's not a willingness to extend that grace. There is no gratitude for mercy if you can't show some mercy. Don't tell me you love the Lord and your heart's full of gratitude to Him if you're not willing to say to somebody you don't like and somebody who's different from you ethnically or socially, could I share the love of Christ with you? Is there anything I can pray with you about? We've, we've tried to make it a habit, not every time, but once in a while when we in our, are in a restaurant and we, the, the server comes to the table and we, he's taking our order or she's taking our order, we say, we're Christians and in a moment we're going to pray. My wife does this most of the time. She says, we're going to pray for our food in a moment. Is there anything, we're going to thank the Lord for our food. Is there, is there anything in your life that we could ask God to help you with? Could we pray for you about something? And we've seen, we've seen people break into tears right on the spot. Because people are people and everybody has per burdens and hurts. So let's not act like we're full of faith and love and gratitude to God if we're not willing to extend that to others. Number two, how about this? Faith that not only loves across barriers, but faith that invests in God's work. Look at, chapter, look at our chapter again, please, verse five. And this is pretty powerful right here. It says, first, first part of the verse we looked at, for he loveth our nation. But look at the second part of the verse. It says, he hath built us a synagogue. You know what that, that says? It says that this man somehow, at his own investment and expense, helped the Jews have a place of worship. You say, well, that's, that's pretty neat, but let me give you the miracle in that. He helped them have a synagogue of worship that he could not enter. He was a Gentile. The, the temple in Jerusalem had a Gentile court. It was a large grassy area, 
outside the holy place and the holy of holies that, that only the Gentiles, that's as far as they could come. So he couldn't go in the synagogue with him. He couldn't go into the place where the Jews worshiped. So here's the thought I want you to see, and you can go to that next slide. This, this centurion invested in that which would be of no profit to himself. You know what that is? That's amazing faith. The pastor just led you to take on this Palmyra project. And do you know what the truth is about that project? The Palmyra people having the word of God will probably be of no benefit to you. Except that you get to take part in the work of God in the advancing of the gospel and his mission. Spiritually, there will be a benefit, but you'll never profit from that. Are you with me this morning? Are we willing to invest in that which brings no direct benefit to ourselves? A lot of people think it's a wonderful thing because they attend a church that is a mission-minded church. Can I tell you, attending this place is not good enough. <laughs> but investing in God's work and proving your faith by your own investment is necessary. So what are you doing to invest in the mission of God, the advancement of the gospel around this world? Can I go to number three? Faith that works for the good of others. Please note from verses 2 and 3 that this centurion did not send these Jews to Jesus for help for himself, but rather he sent them because he said, my servant is sick. My servant is sick and, and ready to die. You say, well, what's so important about that? The social status of a slave in this day was that they were looked at as no more important than a farm implement or a tool. If a, if a servant got sick, you just let them die and you get another one. It's like a broken tool. You throw it out, you go buy a new hammer. William Barclay said, in Roman law, a slave was defined as a living tool with no rights. A master could ill-treat him or even kill him if he chose and there would be no repercussions. And here's what I'm asking you. Here's the application for this point. Can we learn to plead with Jesus on behalf of those who are in spiritual darkness? Can we plead with God on behalf of others who need the Savior? That's amazing faith. Can I ask you very bluntly, when is the last time you prayed for unreached people groups around the world that Maybe you've never heard, you don't know who they are, you don't know where they live, but, but you saw on some mission literature, you saw the Palembang people of southern Sumatra. You said, God, would you send a missionary to Sumatra? Maybe you heard of the Waukee people of the Pamiri region in Central Asia. Have you prayed for the Waukee people? It takes amazing faith to care about people God cares about that you've never met. Isn't that the truth? Can I give you number four? Faith that is humble. Faith that is humble. Now, humility is a difficult subject to preach on. Do you know that? You heard about the guy that wrote a book, is ten, The Ten Most Humble People in the World and How I Trained the Other Nine. <laughs> or the other book is called Humility and How I Attained It. <clears throat> Put the next thing up there, if you would, please. Let me just define humility in my terms. Teachability. You ever met, I'm going to meddle right now. Have you ever met a teenager you couldn't tell them anything? You know, if you know, if you knew as a 15-year-old what I know now, you wouldn't be doing that. Yeah, all right. Uh. Can I ask you a question? Can God teach you? Can God teach you? That is amazing faith. Number five, 
or whatever number it is. Yeah, number five, faith that shows confidence in the power of Christ. And I know I breezed through these last three points here, but notice in verses six through nine, this centurion said, please don't even come under my roof. I understand your authority. And if you will just say in a word, my servant will be healed. Here, here is a Gentile Roman officer that understood the authority and power of the word of Christ. Do you understand that power and do I understand? If we open our Bibles, now, now probably the majority of this crowd here this morning, I would hope the majority of this crowd, you've learned to trust God in many areas of your life. We're all at different levels of growth, but we've learned to trust God in different areas of our life. Uh, can I, here's one example. You're, you're a tither. When the offering plate is passed, it's just, it's just what you're going to do. You're going to put a check in the offering for 10% of your income because you know the tithe is the Lord's. And you took that step of faith back there somewhere and you decided that God can take better care of me on 90% of my income than I can take care of myself on 100% of my income. Amen. Is that true? I'm going to trust him. I'm giving this and trusting. What if you come to another place in Scripture and it commands something that you're not doing? Can you just look at that verse and say, Lord, that's your word and I need to change? That's amazing faith. We had a watch night service. I don't know if we still do that. and many, Most churches don't do that anymore. But years ago in a church where I was an assistant pastor, we had a watch night service and we let some of the young men in the church who were called to preach they, they came up and preached five minutes or 10 minute sermons, I forget. And one young man got up there, his name was Carl Betts, and he read his scripture text and he said, let's pray. And he bowed his head and he said, Lord, help us to understand your word today and just do it without thinking. That's a pretty good prayer. You don't need to think about it. That's the word of the Lord. I'm going to obey it. <clears throat> so I'm talking about loving across barriers. That's amazing faith. I'm talking about personally investing in the work of God, not watching others and, and, and sitting in the same room with others who are investing, but are you investing in the work of God? I'm talking about working for the good of others. Can you reach out to God on behalf of someone else and reach out to them on behalf of God? I'm talking about humility, walking before God with a teachable heart and a teachable spirit and putting your confidence and your faith in the power of his word. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, I want to ask you to come to this altar in just a few minutes when the music begins and let somebody take a Bible and show you how to be saved. If you're a believer and God has spoken to your heart this morning, would you do business with the Lord? Whether it's right there in your seat or at this altar on your knees, would you take care of whatever God spoke to your heart about this morning?